Welcome back, Brown Girls. Ashanti here, the founder of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. And in this episode, we're talking to Indigenous leader Paulette Jordan as part of our episodes in honor of Native American Heritage Month. Paulette got her start as an organizer during her college years when she saw that local elected officials were not taking the concerns of the Native community seriously. She became an elected official in her own right when she flipped a state house seat in Northern Idaho, and later she would become Idaho's Democratic nominee for governor in 2018. Paulette's activism expands across the country, where she raises awareness of the concerns of Native communities as a leader in the Democratic National Committee's Native American Caucus and with her work at the Jordan Coalition. Paulette, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm great, Ashanti. Thank you so much for taking this time with me. We're really glad to have you on. So I want to go ahead and get started. And I just came back from speaking at a Women's Political Engagement Summit at UC Riverside. And so many of the young women came up to me and they said, I just started college. I'm just getting civically and politically engaged. And you got your start too when you were younger doing a lot of community work in college. What drove you to want to get involved? A lot of it had to do with my own people and my community being attacked. You know, and it, I am by nature from a political culture because of the way our indigenous peoples of this land were treated. I come from a long line of leaders and naturally conversations in my home were, you know, always about protecting the people and defending the rights in so many ways, whether it was sovereign rights of the people or rights to hunt and fish and rights to prosperity. And for us, that meant you know to farm or to have businesses and uh, to do these things to be self-sustaining. So when I go off to college, it was very similar in nature when I was just kind of walking the campuses and noticing that uh, there's always these rallies happening and people protesting all the time. And of course, this university is in Seattle, so it's very common ground there. But there came upon this time where one of the U.S. senators was attacking tribal sovereign rights. And when our tribal sovereignty was at stake, I just immediately took action and wanted to make sure that people were engaged on this issue, that there was a senator who was attacking tribal rights and tribal existence in that way, because it's, it is our right to be here and our right to practice our culture and our way of being. Uh, but when that feels threatened, I just immediately felt the need to step up and do something about that. So I immediately got engaged at the local level uh, on my own campus, we had rallies, we, we did events, and we were uh, registering people, especially students. And it was interesting for me because I learned so much in that process, but it also taught me a valuable lesson, which is how important it is for us to get activated. Because the minute we, we started registering people, young and old, because we were, we were even having like these salmon bakes, and you know, these salmon bakes where we were attracting people with food and culture. We were then engaging them with the opportunity to register and then making sure that they follow through with that vote because we're telling them in this process of you know, educating people of the issues of you know, what's going on politically. And then just seeing the outcome of that, while we were successful, the, the outcome was that we were able to put in a representative that would respect tribal sovereignty or people that were being suppressed and want to help us fight back. So. That was rewarding in and of itself, but at the same time, you know, you learn so much in, in how important it is to get involved, whether you think voting is important or not, because you know, while I was registering people to vote, fellow students or elders in the community, 
people were still saying, well, my vote doesn't matter and why should I vote? And, you know, just, so there was just a lot of that kind of a, an apathetic tone to, you know, the way people see politics or the way they see uh, elected or public officials representing them, you know, as if they don't care. And there's just, um, there's a wall. So kind of piercing that barrier was really uh, key for us. And I, when we did that to some extent, uh, I just knew that this is, this is the way it has to be. We have to fight harder to get more people engaged. Um, but that's why I, you know, I tell other young people when they're interested in running or they want to do something that's, um, you know, you find something that's very passionate to you and you get involved. And that for me was my way of getting involved, even though you know I was pushed before that, but it just, it just took something to light a fire underneath me. And that was it. It was like, you're going to go after our people. You're going to attack, you know, innocent human beings in this way. Then, you know, we have to do something. Um, and that's where I, I really started taking action and building from there. Uh, but it started just on, on the ground like that, just getting out there, registering people, educating folks. And you touch on something that we hear a lot is that so many people are just apathetic. They don't think that their vote will matter, that them getting out and volunteering will matter. And we actually hear this a lot from people who live in rural and conservative areas that nothing is going to change. Even when I was at this conference at UC Riverside, they just had their first women elected to the city council. One of them is a Latina, one of them is LGBTQ. And it was really great seeing these women talk about their story and how excited everyone was and to see the young women running up to them because they're like, I feel seen for the first time. And when the women talked about it, they literally said there were people who would call them up and say, this area is never going to vote for someone like you. But it made them just double down and prove them wrong. The LGBTQ councilwoman, I love being able to say that, she said, well, I just canvassed that guy's neighborhood three times harder than I normally would have to win. And you're one of those women who flipped a seat from a white Republican male in North Dakota, what did you learn from your campaign and what advice do you have for the women who are thinking about running in these conservative areas where people are saying, you know what, it just can't be done? Yeah, in North Idaho, it's very similar. I mean, you get a lot of people who are definitely disengaged in their own way, whether, you know, it's farmers in the very rural portion of town or it's, you know, uh, people from my reservation uh, on the Coeur d'Alene tribes' lands and you know, that's the thing is you have to be able to communicate the, the message that speaks to them, um, because oftentimes I think, uh, you know, the government is so corrupt and they don't want to get involved. It's never always been that way. But um, I'm often reminded that, you know, government was once a good place and had good representatives. And it just became overrun with uh, all these corrupt people who saw an opportunity and took advantage of it and now use it for themselves you know, for personal gain. Um, which is why they encouraged me to run and say, you know, we want good people, good apples to get in there to do right by the people. You know, I say to people, as far as, it, you know, me flipping a district and what that took, it's just basically getting out there, engaging with the people, just like these other ladies did. You know, even though folks said, well, this is a you know, very red district and never in a million years would you ever get elected in a place like that. Um, and especially in a place like my backyard in North Idaho, where there are a lot of white nationalists who are very prominently identified, you know, gun owner, uh, you know, very radical about their ways and, you know, very anti-government and, 
They're uh, very aggressive by nature. There are some folks who just, you know, they operate a certain way. And sometimes people think that there's no way to get to them, but they're still my neighbor and I see them as such. So I, you know, I always approach everybody respectfully uh, and with integrity. I don't try to uh, sugarcoat anything. I'm very direct. And I think when you're feeding the people an honest truth based on the facts that you have at hand, and that, that is really the best way to communicate. But people will re- learn to respect you based off that because they are just looking for trust. And in this day and age, when they lack that trust, you know, they're always going to look at politicians with a, a side eye and have that, that wall up because there's, you know, there's, there's no reason for them to want to engage when they know that they can't trust you. So they're looking for someone else to, you know, to breach that because they, you know, they all need it. They, they want to be able to believe that the government was going to have their back as it should. I think they were just looking for real leadership that's going to be honest and have integrity and know what they're about, you know, where they're coming from. And I just happen to have this very particular place because I come from a, a rural setting, uh, countryside. I, you know, I know what it's like for loggers. I know what it's like for hunters and, you know, avid fishermen. And I, you know, I definitely know what it's like to be uh, in this place. You know, I didn't come from a very wealthy place, but I also come from a, a farming family and a ranching family. And so there's, you know, there's a lot of connections to be made there. Um, and I think that's how I was really able to connect and get these people who were not my color, my background and my heritage to support me in my cause and my vision, because they saw that while they weren't indigenous or tribal or a woman or young or you know, however you want to see me, they they were still aligned in the fact that I believed in protecting public lands and I understand them from an agricultural perspective. I understand them from a business perspective. And, you know, even uh, some of my political leans, they, they see that there's common ground. Uh, and while they had a Republican representative saying all these things too, they saw more in me. So, you know, for people in my community, they always knew Paulette's out there. She's being a voice. She's always active. You know, she's raising her children. She's raising the community's children. She's out there. And so there's, you know, there's really not much else to say other than like she's a very active person who's willing to defend us in all the best ways possible. We're recording this after the November elections where women did really well. And so many women said, I was elected, especially first time candidates, because the constituents trusted me. They trusted that I would get things done. Virginia had a really great night and they just elected their new leadership in the House of Delegates. And there's a first woman speaker which is amazing. And the majority leader is a black woman. And you just see all of these amazing women who are going to be able to get things done. But they're also not alone. They have other women who are there that they can talk to, who they can relate to, which weighs me into my next question. So when you did flip that seat, that also made you the only Native woman serving in the Idaho State House. And I think I said North Dakota earlier, and I don't know why, because I know you're from Idaho. But (laughs) (laughs) I think it's because I just came from North Dakota. Okay. (laughs) So for the listeners, Paulette is extremely busy. So we've been emailing back and forth. And it's like, she's here, she's there. So she is from Idaho. But that made you the only Native woman serving in the Idaho State House, but you're also the only Democrat serving in Northern Idaho. And we talk a lot on the podcast about being the only brown girl in the room. So what did you learn from that experience where you were the only in multiple ways? 
it's challenging. I will tell you, it's, it's a very lonely place sometimes, but it does force you to think outside of the box because you have to then find ways to not be in your own space. You know, I think when you come from a, a privileged position where you're in the majority, you're not forced to get outside of that comfort zone. And for me, it forced me to get out of my comfort zone and speak to people who I may not normally often speak to. Um, and so I think that's good. It, it helped me rebrand, I guess, how I look at politics. But for me, particularly, it, it taught me so much as far as you know who are people that I can align with, regardless of whether they had an R or D next to their name. And being the only Democrat in North Idaho, of course, you're you're going to be trying to make friends with all these Republicans. But there are so many different varieties of Republicans. I felt that there were those who were far more moderate, who really are more Democrat, and there were those who were uh, more severely Republican, who were just kind of had a very extreme mindset and weren't very practical or pragmatic. And of course, you know, it's, you're still finding ways to engage with them too. So for me, it, it just allowed me to build a, a different frequency or a fluency in form of a language politically with them. And, you know, it's like delving yourself into another country, like just throwing yourself into the, the Chinese culture and then picking up the languages there. So for me, it, it's like that. And I think that's good. It does teach you a lot of lessons and it's very humbling at the same time because when you're, you know, you're just the solo part um, of this political culture, like you're the only Democrat amongst the sea of Republicans, you know, you're, it's, while it's humbling, you're still allowed an opportunity to learn from all of these people, all of these variable, variables and uh, varying perspectives. So I, I found that very empowering at the same time. Uh, but yes, very isolating, sure, and tough, you know, as far as trying to get your opinion or your way across the table um, because you're, you're definitely in the minor minority and you don't have so much political power there to try to sway the entire room, but uh, you still can make change. I saw that in the house, in the state house in Boise when I was able to be on committees and, you know, even though I was the only no vote, I found that there are other ways to go around these votes in the, the state committee houses and the state uh, committee rooms and, you know, it's, it just definitely challenges you to think bigger. So I was able to find some success even being the kind of the, the solo vote or the solo Democrat in North Idaho or the, the only person of color in the room. Um, and I, I just felt that there's just a lot of opportunity there to be representative of all the groups that weren't represented. So when you're the voice of the voiceless, you become the advocate of everyone. So I was taking on issues for the Hispanic community and issues of the, the African-American community and the Native community and then the LGBTQ community. And oftentimes, even though I'm the only indigenous person or the person of color, I felt like, you know, I was going to be the, the loudest voice for these other groups that weren't represented. So if it was a, an issue on, uh, you know, rights to the LGBTQ community needing to be addressed, I definitely wanted to be, you know, strong for them. And I would stand up and definitely fight and advocate on their behalf as best as I could. And so same with everything else. And it's because I expected that at some point, if I'm never in the room, I hope someone else will step in and represent me in the best way possible. So you definitely take on those responsibilities too. You're so vocal about many things, which is why I'm like, I have to have Paula on the podcast because she can just speak to multiple things, including being a mom who's doing all of this work. 
I was just able to see you. We were at the Democratic National Committee's Women's Leadership Forum. You were on a panel and you talked about being a mom and balancing this. And I feel it is something very important for us to talk about, especially when women are thinking about running for office, because being a mom, that's the first thing on their mind is how will this impact their children? Can they juggle everything? What advice do you have for the working moms out there who are thinking, oh, I just don't know if I could step up and run for office or even get appointed to a board or a commission or find the time to volunteer? What do you have to say to them about making this a part of their lives? I definitely, as a mother, would say to other mothers to step up and lead where possible because we do need more empathetic leaders who understand people in a, a different lens. And mothers have a very different lens that is special to me. We protect life, you know, and as a mother who creates life, you definitely want to protect all life, all children of the world. And that's that's very special, but unique and needs to be heard in the halls of leadership or where major decisions are being made. But to just share an example to other mothers, I think is important because for me, I, I try to pass along this um, bit of knowledge, which is when one of my mentors, uh, who's a representative in her day and time before me, Jeannie Givens, who's also a Portland tribal member, she, uh, or citizen, she was um, one who pushed me at the time I was considering to run and just really kind of was having a hard time with it myself because as a mother, you don't want to leave your children and you, you always have this inner sense of guilt that, you know, you're not being the best mother possible when you're not there for your children all the time. And I felt there was like a, there was an issue with this for me, but being in office and being a public servant that I was somehow abandoning my children, you know, so if they're at school and something happened to them, and if I was in the hall, you know, in the legislature voting on these major important issues that, you know, if I couldn't be reached, you know, at that given point in time, I was letting them down. Uh, and that's hard as a mother, that just that gets to your core. So there's a lot of hesitancy for mothers. You know, that's, that's a big block for us in some ways. But she reminded me, Jeannie Gibbons at this time, a, a mentor friend of mine, she said to me that when you're a mother and you have your children, while it's difficult to be away from your children and serving in public office, you have to be mindful that you're still doing a greater good for all the people that you serve. And your children will see that. And while your children tend to want to emulate you or their parents because they do see us like superheroes, you know, they want to be like us. She says that is the best way to guide your children is to do right by them by being the best leader possible. And when you're, you know, in front of everybody and the people and you're fighting for them, your children will see that. And then they're going to learn from you and they're going to learn all these great things about you in that way. So she was she was encouraging me to basically, you know, continue to step up and lead and, and serve in these ways so that my children can learn from this and, and then continue to be inspired and do more. Because someday, you know, while my children see me doing this, they're going to do bigger things too. They're going to be bigger and better. Um, and so that's just a way for us to perpetuate this line. Uh, and I completely agree because when I was growing up, I looked at my grandparents who were big leaders in my community and tribal community, and they were chiefs. And, you know, women and men who were, you know, they're great visionary thinkers. And so I, I looked at that. And so it's nice to continue this line. And I would just encourage other mothers to keep that in mind, because when you're leading on the front line, while your kids are on the side looking or watching, they're going to see the best in you. 
because the best in you will get drawn out, you know, on these hardships, you know, while you're on the front line fighting you know, for the greater good. And that's what they need to see most is your best being pulled out of you. And that's what's going to improve the world. That's what shakes the world up. And people will start seeing major differences that way when more women wake up and lead, especially, I think, mothers, because mothers come from a different place too. And I, I just think there's a, there's just a special aspect to that uh, because we, you know, we're, it's just a, a life-giving nature about us. And, but I, I honestly just think all women should just consider that rising up and leading. But when it comes to other mothers and, you know, how we tend to consider our children first, which is what we do naturally, I just hope that they consider that and think about that because their children will be watching. And that's also what keeps us in line at the same time, because we're always trying to keep that, um, the aspect of the integrity intact, you know, for their sake too. So it's, it's, I think it's just a good, uh, good deal all around. And that watching piece that you talked about is so important because now we're actually seeing women running for office and they're running for office because they saw their mom run for office and their mom serve an elected office. So it was normal for them. And when I go to events and there's candidates and elected officials and they have their young daughters, I just absolutely want to cheer up looking at them because this is just normal for them. This is normal to see their mom running for office. This is normal to see mom leading the city council meeting. And we just need more of that. But that only happens when we do have the mom stepping up to run for office. Yes. And you see their children because I see a lot of my peers like that with the bring their children. I bring my sons to my events and my work and, you know, they're, they just become more educated and advanced in so many ways because they're, they're so enlightened when they, they are able to learn from us and glean from our experience. So I see that in other women when they bring their daughters and I'm just like, amazed by how brilliant they are. They're, they're so far ahead of us in the rest of the game because they, you know, they've been there and done that since they were you know, born since day one. So something else that you do a lot of work on is with voting rights and protecting voting rights in the indigenous community. You serve as a leader on the Democratic National Committee's Native American Caucus. I know this is a big focus for the work you all are doing just tell our listeners about some of the barriers still that the indigenous community faces when they run for office. Like before we started recording, you and I had a little chat about, you know, you going to vote and how it was very different being in a rural area. And what are some ways that our listeners could get involved when it comes to protecting voting rights, especially as it pertains to the indigenous community? There's so many ways. Um, you know, we talked about this over the last year after we watched um, some major battles happen in different red states that were suppressing the native vote, especially in states like North Dakota. You know, we see that in Idaho as well. But in North Dakota, there is a very particular issue that happened where tribal citizens were not able to vote based off of their tribal IDs and, of course, their uh, physical address. And a lot of reservations don't always have roads to um, align with their physical address so they don't have that on their card so if they're using a peel box that was an issue in the state of north dakota and it was declared that they were not allowed or valid to vote because of the fact that they didn't have a physical address but they had a peel box so a lot of native people and a lot of them who vote or support democratic candidates who support the tribal communities weren't able to support those candidates Uh, and of course they just were not able to get out and vote And of course, we had to fight back. We had uh, Native Vote Montana uh, get out uh, and 
try to send a lot of folks over to help out. There's a bunch of different organizations, you know, and if people are really looking to help the tribal community become more activated or to have that support to vote, I would say that uh, the best ways are to volunteer with these organizations or get uh, support them financially because they're always needing resources uh, to get people activated because they are paying people to get out and knock on doors or just uh, you know driving uh, buses or even just helping with the campaign itself. But these are voter initiatives that you know we need more people to get behind because tribal people are really suppressed in so many ways. And in Idaho, we learned you know major there were major problems in between the rights of the voter and the polling place because they were. They were taking, you know, upwards to uh, two to three hours just to get to the polling place because they're so far away or, you know, the uh, wherever they're going to vote. When they get there, they're running out of ballots or they're having issues with recognizing their tribal IDs, which is the common form of identification for a tribal citizen. And so when you have all these issues arising, you know, we, we weren't getting a lot of support, from whether it was the secretary of state or the state legislature at the time. And um, these are major concerns for us. But. Luckily, we have these uh, voter registration organizations that are activated and they're pushing to you know, build support around these areas um, within rural, rural parts of like Montana, rural parts of Washington, rural parts of Idaho and uh, North and South Dakota. So we just definitely need more people to support uh, financially to fund these organizations, keep them uh, off the ground and of course, sending volunteers. So um, if people are interested, uh, they can certainly reach out to my staff, staff at jordancoalition.com, uh, and then we will definitely provide you information to reach out to these other folks or to make that connection happen. But we are also building our own coalition to uh, activate people uh, in Idaho, and we're going to launch that website soon. Uh, but if you want to get on our list just to stay uh, up to date on what's happening there, again, just email us at staff at jordancoalition.com. Awesome. And we will make sure that we put that email address in the notes for this episode for the listeners who are going to be looking for it. So I want to wrap up, Paulette. You are such a trailblazer. Everything that you have done with your run for state house, you were the Democratic nominee for governor of Idaho in 2018. What you're doing with voting rights. What advice do you have for the brown girls listening saying, I want to be just like her? Never let anyone tell you no. Even when you have a lot of folks who will uh, try to challenge you and give you all the reasons why you shouldn't, never take no for an answer. I've had far too many people tell me because I was indigenous or because I'm a woman or because I'm young or even just being a mother that I should not run. And all those reasons are the best reasons why I should run. And any young woman out there who is considering you have all the right reasons to run. And so those are the, the only reasons you need. I tell folks that I don't have anyone here in this world that I, I really need as far as an advisor goes because I walk with my ancestors. It is prayer that and meditation that gets me through you know, in this, this lifetime. And I want to encourage many young people out there who especially like myself and see me and what I'm doing to stay close to that, um, to really stay t- close to themselves and trust themselves, trust their own intuition and their own instincts and understand that they know better. You have all the answers within you. And when you can reach deep down within um, and trust yourself, you can do anything. 
Oh, that's such good advice. And it reminds me of something that I just saw on Instagram, I think earlier this week, where someone was like, your ancestors did not fight hard just for you to say no and sit down. And it's true. It's so true. Paulette, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Shanti. I love you so much. And I really appreciate you, all that you're doing with the podcast and wish you so much more success. I uh, thank you. I love you. So just for our listeners, I'm just a big fan girl of Paulette. She's so great. And one year she actually came to my birthday brunch and I was just like, Paulette <laughs> is at my birthday brunch. I was just, we had a not so good birthday brunch with the waiter who kept <laughs> spilling drinks over everyone. But I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. It was fun. <laughs> we, but great company and great location. It was a beautiful day. I, this is a great memory for me. <laughs> I'm glad that means a lot to me that you said that because you got spilled on like twice. And I'm like, she's never coming out with me again. She's like, nope, I can't do it. (laughs) Thanks so much, Paulette. Well, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode, Brown Girls. Stay tuned for next week, where we talk to Rachel Lorenzo with Indigenous Women Rising a collective that uplifts Indigenous-led community organizing and ensures reproductive justice movements are inclusive of Indigenous women and families. Stay up to date with us on the BGG website in between episodes, www.thebgguide.com, and on our social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The BG Guide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by Wonder Media Network. You can find them on Instagram at wmn.media and on Twitter at WMN Media. Until next time, brown girls.